Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it comes to reading novels, most of us will gravitate towards different types of genres. Some people love a good old-fashioned Western novel. For others, there's nothing better than a mystery, maybe an Agatha Christie whodunit, while for still more, it's fantasy or science fiction, or the list goes on. Now, these preferences might be one reason why different Christians love different books of the Bible. And that's because the Bible is made up of different genres, too. Some of us might gravitate towards the Old Testament narratives, the stories, stories such as David and Goliath, things like that. Some might like the mystery of apocalyptic literature, books like Revelation, but others of us just prefer something more down-to-earth and practical. Maybe the book we've been studying the past few months, the book of James. And James is one of those books that is more practical and hands-on, gets into the day-to-day living of the Christian life. And the book of James is a book of wisdom. We could even go so far as to call it the New Testament book of wisdom. This is one of the themes found throughout this letter. It begins near the beginning of James 1. There we are encouraged to pray to God for wisdom and how we are assured that God answers those prayers when we offer them in faith. This theme continues in places like James 3 and 4 where heavenly wisdom is compared to earthly wisdom. And the same theme is found at the very end of this book, too, our text. And we see this theme reappear in how James returns to one of his favorite topics, the topic of how we speak, the use of our tongues. And this mirrors the Old Testament book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. Read through the book of Proverbs, you can See how it continually returns to that theme of how we speak and the words we use. It's the same thing with the New Testament book of wisdom, the book of James. So our text, the end of James, focuses on that topic throughout its uh, verses. And so that brings us to the sermon theme this morning, which is as follows. Ending the New Testament book of wisdom, we're going to see that it ends by teaching us to, first of all, guard against careless oath-making, Uh, Secondly, to seek the interceding help of the elders. And finally, to turn back people straying from the truth. So the first thing, it ends by teaching us to guard against careless oath-making. Now, the Apostle James, again, has regularly spoken about how we use our tongues. Chapter 1 instructs us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. A few verses later, the Holy Spirit warns us that if we don't bridle our tongues, our religion is worthless. Then in chapter 3, there's that long section about how we are to tame the tongue, and it warns us about the destructive nature of the tongue. In chapter 4, we are taught not to boast with our mouths. And now here, God warns us against making careless oaths. Now, the Apostle James was most likely writing to Jewish Christians in the early church. And in fact, this 
letter was probably one of the earliest books of the New Testament to be written. And it was common for the Jews at this time to make frivolous oaths and vows, swearing by all kinds of things in creation to prove a point in their speech. And you might hear people today do similar things when they say things such as, "I, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear by the stars, or something like that. So another reason they might have done this was to avoid using the, the divine name of God, Yahweh. They believed it was too holy for humans to even speak. And yes, while God's name is holy, <clears throat> and while we must always use the name of God with the utmost reverence, this was simply adding to God's commandment something we are not allowed to do. We may use God's name, but we use it with reverence. And here, that man-made rule may have caused them to start making oaths in an ungodly way, swearing by all kinds of things in creation. Because of all this, the Spirit through James teaches us as follows. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Above all, he says, of first importance, or take this really seriously. So this teaching here should grab our attention. We must not slide into careless, ungodly oath making. No swearing on your mother's grave or anything like that. Now, when we read these words here, we might wonder if our text is making a blanket statement against any oaths. The same thought might arise when we read the Sermon on the Mount, as we did this morning. The Lord Jesus there makes similar statements to our text. Now, to that question, we must answer with no. If this were a blanket statement against all oaths, it would bring us into conflict with other parts of Scripture. And that's because you find God's people making various oaths throughout the Scriptures. For example, in Matthew 26, when Jesus was under trial before the high priest, the high priest said to Christ, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And this was putting the Lord Jesus under oath before God. And our Lord Jesus didn't respond to the high priest saying, hey, you're not allowed to do that. But he responded with the truth. Unless this is uh, something we think that only the Lord Jesus can do because he's perfect, Consider the Apostle Paul. He repeatedly made such oaths. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. That is an oath formula. Another place is Romans 1, where he says, For God is my witness, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. These are not isolated examples in Scripture. And so our text is guarding us against a certain kind of oath-making. 
one that is frivolous and careless. When it says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, it means do not make these sorts of oaths. Why is that? What's at the heart of this teaching? Why is it of utmost importance that we avoid doing this? First of all, swearing by these types of frivolous oaths takes away from the gravity of true biblical oaths. True biblical oaths are meant to establish the truth of a matter in a very solemn way. Think of giving testimony in court where it's of utmost importance that the truth is spoken. And Paul, yes, he repeatedly made use of them. But as you see him make them, it's for the sake of the good news of Christ. He wasn't just trying to add some punch to his words. He found it necessary at times for the sake of the gospel. That's why he made them. That's the first thing. First thing. But not only that, but making these frivolous oaths takes away from the certainty of our regular everyday speech. You see, we shouldn't need to use these types of oaths in our day-to-day lives. Our speech should be trustworthy all the time. Christians are meant to be reliable and dependable where you say what you mean. And you mean what you say. No, Christians are not meant to be people who talk out of both sides of their mouths. We don't say yes with our fingers crossed. We don't say yes while all the time thinking, well, I'm not really going to do that. As our text instructs us, let your yes be yes. Your no be no. Someone should never have to doubt about whether or not you're telling the truth or about whether or not you will carry through with what you have said or promised. God wants us to be completely dependable in the things that we say. When we agree to do something, we should do everything we can to fulfill that, do that very thing. And if someone asks us to do something and we know we can't really do it, then you need to tell that person, no, sorry, I, I can't do it. God wants us to say what we mean and mean what we say. That brings us to the second point. Now, the second part of our text begins with some simple commands. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, these are very basic things. Perhaps they might even sound a bit cliche. Can't every sermon have these commands? You need to pray more, or sing more, and so on. And yet, these simple commands are necessary because it's easy to neglect them. If you are suffering, then pray beloved. Take those things to the Lord in prayer. God's throne is always open to us through Jesus Christ. 
And so why would we not make use of this wonderful gift God has given to us that we have access to His throne and we can bring before Him those things that burden us? As it says in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. If you are suffering, then pray. Bring those things before God. Tell Him of your hurts and your worries and your troubles. He cares for you. Well, perhaps one reason why we might not pray in suffering is because we find it too difficult, and that can happen. It's true that prayer takes a measure of energy and effort. And when you're going through suffering, you might find, I, it's so hard for me to, to pray, and that can happen to God's people as they go through struggles. But in those times, remember also what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6, God doesn't hear you because of your many words or your eloquent words. He hears the simple prayers of his children offered in faith. Look at the Lord's Prayer as Christ taught us in Matthew 6. It's not a long prayer. It's not complicated. And our prayers as we go through suffering can be like that. And if you still have a hard time with this, one thing I would encourage you to do is to write out a prayer or two. Write out a prayer. And let that be the prayer you pray every day. It doesn't mean you're heaping up empty phrases as Christ warns against. But it means you do what you need to do in order to pray through suffering when you can't find the strength to do it regularly on your own. Write out a prayer. Bring it before God. The next simple command is a form of prayer, too. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. When you are feeling joy, or even just happiness, it's a great opportunity to, to point us to God. It reminds us that He is the source of that joy. He is the source of every delight and all of our good cheer. And there's an important thing this does when we, when we do this. Singing songs of praise in times of joy, it imprints on our hearts and minds to love God more, that He is the source of all these gifts that we receive. When you are joyful and happy, bring that before God in praise. Reminds us that God is the source of all good. So that's the first part of this second section of our text. And that brings us to the second part of this second section, uh, the section about the prayers offered for healing. Now, if we had questions about what our text is saying about oaths, uh, this section here probably raises even more questions. We might wonder if James is encouraging some kind of faith healing where through the prayers of the elders, every sickness we face in life is miraculously and maybe even instantly uh, healed. It sounds like this text is suggesting that uh, Christians don't need doctors. You can just call the elders to pray over you and you will be cured. 
And then we might wonder, well, what's also with this anointing oil? Is there something special about this oil? Does it have some kind of magical properties? And do the elders need to anoint you still today, maybe on your next home visit? Well, to understand what our text is saying, I should point out a number of things. The word used here to describe someone as sick has different nuances. And that's true of many words in every language. In the New Testament Gospels, this word is often used to describe someone who is indeed physically sick. But in the New Testament epistles, this word is almost always used in the sense of weakness, being weak. And to see this, one place where this word is used is found in Romans 14. In that chapter, Paul contrasts the weak in faith and the strong in faith. He does not mean the sick in faith. It's the same word found here in James 5. But we can mention other instances too. So what is likely the case here is that someone is physically sick and as a result has grown spiritually weak and worn out. And when you're sick, especially for long periods of time, or when the sickness is of a more severe nature, it can indeed wear you out, not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. When you're going through suffering and sickness, God's promises can, at times for Christians, they can seem very distant. It can lead to despondency, discouragement in the faith, and even despair. Not only that, but when you face physical suffering or are lying on a sick bed for lengthy periods of time, your mind can start to wrap you up in all kinds of knots. And it's possible to think your way into a state of spiritual distress. And added to this is that when you go through periods of sickness or deep suffering, it can happen that your sins are pressed upon your conscience greatly. And the devil will likewise take his opportunities to accuse you of your sin, to sow seeds of doubt in your mind to try to bring you to despair. And that's why our text gives us the following instructions. Is anyone among you sick or weak? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the person who is sick or weak, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The elders of the church are meant to pray with God's people and for God's people. And this intercession is meant to have two specific purposes. The first thing it's meant to do is to grant spiritual relief and strength to the weak person who is struggling under sickness or suffering, and also as they're struggling in their, in their faith through that time. And when you are going through struggles in faith or discouragement from going through periods of sickness, it's so good to have come, people come to you to pray for you and with you. 
can give you great encouragement through prayers. God grants encouragement to your, your heart. It can help to strengthen your faith, guard against doubts as you go through that suffering. And this purpose of the elder's intercession also helps us to understand the aspect of the anointing with oil in this passage. There's nothing magical at all about this oil. Instead, oil in this time period was used for refreshment. Think of what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about fasting. When you fast, don't disfigure yourself to show that you're fasting. In fact, don't make a show of it at all. Some people tried to disfigure their faces. They showed, oh, I'm fasting. I'm being super spiritual. But Christ says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Refresh your appearance so that your fasting may not be seen by others. You're not making a show of it. The same thing is found in Luke 7 where Christ, he went to the house of Simon the Pharisee, and there a sinful woman anointed his feet with oil. And Christ says to Simon, in contrast to this woman, you did not anoint my head with oil when I came in. That was the regular practice of hospitality for refreshment. Not about some kind of magical properties to heal. It goes hand in hand with the type of relief the elders bring the person who is struggling. And that being the case, while there's nothing wrong with people anointing with oil today, or the elders doing that, it's also not necessary. We don't need to do that. So that's the first purpose of this intercession by the elders, for spiritual refreshment in times of suffering and sickness. The second purpose is related. and It has to do with the keys of the kingdom. And through the ministry of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is opened and closed. And part of that ministry includes declaring that a believer's sins are forgiven. Christ has given the authority to the church to forgive sins. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And this situation in our text is a wonderful opportunity for the elders to use that authority. You elders, you can use the keys of the kingdom in your visits too. You can assure God's people that their sins are really and truly forgiven them for the sake of Christ's blood offered on the cross once for all. Beloved, you can be assured of that too. That your sins are forgiven through faith in the blood of Christ. See, as you go through suffering or sickness, again, it can maybe impress upon your conscience the sins that you have committed in your life. A great thing to do then is, as you talk about these things with the elders, confess those sins. And the elders can give you assurance that through the blood of Christ, your sins are forgiven by His saving work. And that brings true refreshment. Having the good news of Christ applied to a struggling Christian is a balm for the soul. And help us to move forward in faith and in joy, even if the, the sickness and the, the suffering continues. So if you're going through these struggles, beloved, do what the text tells you to do. Don't be proud. 
Don't struggle in these things all on your own, thinking you got to do it all yourself. Don't try to just keep a stiff upper lip. Reach out to the elders in time of need. In fact, you're called to do that. It's the elders' job to intercede, but you need to let them know of the struggles and the suffering. Don't be ashamed. This is why God has ordained these things. And this part of the text ends by showing us the power at work and the, uh, through the prayers of God's people. It says, A prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And it cites the example of Elijah. Elijah was just a regular person like you and me, yet God did amazing things in answer to his prayers. Stop the rain on the land for years. And then he brought it back again in response to Elijah's prayers. Amazing. And the point is that even though he was an ordinary believer, God heard his prayer offered in faith. That's meant to give you confidence too. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. So pray, beloved, and also seek the interceding help of the elders. That brings us to our last point. Now, the book of James ends with a call to turn back people straying from the truth. And that also might be one of the reasons why the Apostle James wrote this letter, to bring back people straying from the truth and guard us against them. It can and does happen that people in the church stray away from God's Word. Sadly, Covenant children sometimes go astray. Confessing members sometimes go astray. On the word, interesting to know, the word used to describe someone wandering here is the word that gave us the English word for uh, planet, of all things. And why is that? Well, for a long time, the planets were seen to be wandering stars. All the other stars, they stayed their course throughout the sky very predictably, uh, very consistently. You could know the path they would follow uh, in the night, uh, day after day. The planets, on the other hand, don't just follow the same path as the other stars. They appear to stray off course, and so wandering stars. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit speaks of people in the church who wander off the path of truth. They turn aside, turning their backs on the gospel. They, They go their own way. They leave the rest of the body of Christ, which is walking according to God's Word. This, of course, is spiritually disastrous. And these people need the help of you and of me. God calls us to call people back to Him when we see them straying off the path of truth. Remember, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. And God can use you to call someone back to the faith. As we see people straying away, maybe no longer coming to church, God wants to use us to call them back. You know, from time to time, we hear announcements on the pulpit that a certain member is seeking to withdraw from the church or in the process of being excommunicated, or maybe we don't see someone attending for quite some time. 
At those times, a congregation is encouraged to reach out to the wandering member, to call him back. I would like to ask you, do you ever do that? Do you ever reach out to the person who's wandered off the path of truth? I encourage you to do that. Even if you don't really have a relationship with that person, it doesn't matter. They're part of the body of Christ. We need to care for them. And what an impact it could make if everyone in the church either called or emailed or texted or visited the straying member to to call them back. Wouldn't that make them sit up and think again about what they're doing? And by God's grace, sometimes members do come back. And with this, the text ends by saying, let the person know who brings back a straying member of the church, he, he will save that person's soul from death, will cover a multitude of sins. Now, that doesn't mean that the person who brought the straying member back will get his own slate of sins wiped away for doing a good deed. It means that the person who's straying away will be brought back and his sins will be covered by true repentance. And Christ will cleanse them from all of his unrighteousness. And his sins of the past will be covered by the atoning work of Christ. And the future sins he would have committed if he kept going on the wayward path would be stopped. Love it. Look out for each other. Take note of those straying off the path. Let us call them back to God's people again. Pray that by God's grace they might return. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing Psalm 77, the stanzas 2, 4, and 7.